Section 1 of National Geographic Magazine, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. South America. Annual Address by the President. Gardner G. Hubbard. Part 1. Two years ago, I selected for my annual address Africa, or the Dark Continent. Last year, Asia, the land of mountains and deserts. This year, I have chosen South America, the land of rivers and pampas. The recent meeting of the Pan-American Congress has called attention to South America, a part of our continent under republican forms of government, and rich in products which we lack, while it relies mainly on other foreign countries for goods which we manufacture. North America and South America should be more closely united, for the one is the complement of the other. The prominent features of South America are its long ranges of mountains, next to the Himalayas, the highest in the world, its great valley, and its immense plateau, extending from the Straits of Magellan to the Caribbean Sea. The Mountains the Andes rise in the extreme south at Cape Horn, run in a northerly course through Patagonia and southern Chile, thence continuing in three nearly parallel ranges, the western chain called the Andes, the others known as the Cordilleras through Peru, Bolivia and Ecuador to Colombia. The Cordilleras and the Andes are connected in several places by knots or cross-chains of mountains. In Colombia, the Andes turn to the northwest, reaching their lowest elevation at the Panama Canal, and continue thence through Central America and North America as the Rocky Mountains to the Arctic Ocean. Near the source of the Magdalena and Cauca rivers in Colombia, the eastern range is deflected to the east along the northern coast of South America. The central range disappears between the Magdalena and Cauca rivers. The Andes form the watershed of the continent. The waters on the western slope flow into the Pacific Ocean. The rivers that rise on the eastern slope in northern Peru and Ecuador force their way through the Cordilleras and at their foot drain the montaña of Bolivia, Peru, and Brazil. In the southern part of Peru and upper Chile, there is a broad sierra or plateau at an elevation of from twelve to fourteen thousand feet. The streams that rise in the Sierra either empty into salt or alkaline lakes or sink into the ground. Unlike all other long ranges of mountains, the continental or eastern side of the Cordilleras is nearly as precipitous as that extending to the Pacific. Craters of extinct volcanoes, and volcanoes now in eruption, are found in all parts of the chain. In Ecuador, there are 52 volcanoes, and 20 of these, covered with perpetual snow and presided over by Chimborazo and Cotopaxi, rise out of a group of mountains encircling the valley of Quito, and are all visible from a single point. Three are active, and five others have been in eruption at one or more times since the conquest. One of these, Sangai, is the most active volcano on the globe, it sends forth a constant stream of fire, water, mud, and ashes, and some assert 
that it has done so without intermission for three hundred years. Two hundred sixty-seven explosions have been counted in one hour. This is also the land of earthquakes. In 1868, 50,000 lives, we are told, were lost in one day. The tremor was felt over four countries, and from the Andes to the Sandwich Islands. The tidal wave washed a gunboat of the United States on shore at Arica in lower Peru, 1,000 miles to the south, and 16 hours later the wave was felt across the Pacific at New Zealand. A range of mountains separates eastern Venezuela and Guiana from the valley of the Amazon. Other ranges south of the Amazon run southwestwardly, following the Atlantic coastline from Cape San Roque to the Rio de la Plata. River Systems A great oceanic current flows along the western coast of Africa to the equator, where it is deflected across the Atlantic Ocean and becomes the equatorial current. On reaching the coast of South America, near Cape St. Rocky, it is again deflected north and south. Trade winds blowing over the equatorial current reach the coast at Brazil, surcharged with vapor. As they follow up the valley of the Amazon, the vapors are partially condensed, and frequent showers refresh the land. But when the clouds at the foothills of the Andes meet the colder winds from the south and strike the snow summits of the Cordilleras, all the moisture is condensed, and the rain falls in tropical showers for half the year, and waters the largest and richest valley in the world. In this valley, among the Cordilleras, three great rivers, the Orinoco, the Amazon, and La Plata, rise. The mountain ranges north and south of the Amazon divide this great valley into three lesser valleys, down which the Orinoco, the Amazon, and La Plata flow, watering three-fourths of South America. The Orinoco The headwaters of the Orinoco rise in two ranges of mountains, the Cordilleras in the west and the mountains of Venezuela many hundred miles to the east. Four hundred tributaries, abounding in beautiful falls and cataracts, unite to form this great river. The whole valley, for 1,600 miles, is filled with dense and tangled forests. Noble trees of unrivaled beauty blossom in endless prodigality. Birds of gorgeous plumage nestle in their lofty recesses. Tall ferns, vines, creeping plants, and parasites form a dense tangle of undergrowth, swarming with life. Myriads of insects in great variety, reptiles of strange and singular form, lizards and venomous serpents find their homes and sustenance in the wild, dense mass of vegetation. The Amazon the valley of the Amazon collects its waters from a region 1,800 miles wide from north to south and 2,500 miles long from the Andes to the Atlantic Ocean. Even at the foot of the Andes, the Amazon is a mighty river. The valley rapidly narrows to a width of 600 or 700 miles and then more gradually to the ocean, where it is only 150 miles wide. Its total fall from the foothills of the Andes to the Atlantic is very slight, 
not over three or four hundred feet, and probably considerably less. The rims of the valley are formed of diorite and sandstone, and are raised only a little above the floodplain, which is formed of mud and silt, the detritus brought down by the Amazon and its tributaries. The floodplain is from fifty to one hundred miles wide, gradually narrowing as it approaches the ocean. Through this valley the Amazon cuts its way, separating often into channels which sometimes run parallel to each other for several hundred miles, frequently forming large islands or expanding into lakes. Similar floodplains are found on all its larger tributaries. Up from the ocean into this valley, an immense tidal wave rolls, with a bore twice a day, forcing back the current of the Amazon five hundred miles, and inundating a portion of the floodplain. In the early autumn, the equatorial rise commences in the headwaters of its tributaries, far south of the equator. The rains and melting snow raise the streams, and these the waters of the Amazon. As the sun crosses the equator and moves to the north, the rain follows its course, and the branches that have their source in the east and northeast add their flood to the waters of the southerly branches. The flood in the Amazon is thus continued for nearly six months, raising its waters from thirty to fifty feet. The channels are filled, and the floodplains are overflowed. The whole valley becomes a network of navigable waters, with islands and channels and lakes innumerable, forming a great inland sea, which the Brazilians call the Mediterranean of America. The upland, though, only a little above the floodplain, is rarely overflowed. The plants and animals of the floodplain were formerly considered as distinct from those of the upland, as are the plants and animals of Europe from those of America. But later investigations show that there is but little difference between the species. The sea breeze blows up the valley about a thousand miles. Then, for one thousand five hundred miles, the atmosphere is stagnant and sultry. The climate is that of a permanent vapor bath. The dense foliage forms dark, lofty vaults, which the sunlight never penetrates, and over all hangs a perpetual mist. The abundance and beauty of vegetation increases, and the trees which at the mouth of the river blossom only once a year, here bloom and bear fruit all the year round. Many great rivers run into the Amazon from the north and the south, most of them navigable for many hundred miles. The Madeira, its greatest tributary, after running two thousand miles, empties into the king of rivers, without making any perceptible difference in its width or depth. This mighty current, rushing into the ocean, meets the equatorial current, and for over one hundred miles keeps on nearly a straight course, when the stronger and mightier oceanic current deflects it to the north. At, from two hundred to three hundred miles from land, the sea is strongly tinged, and in April and May has nearly the clay-yellow hue of the Amazon. And even further north, about four hundred miles from its mouth, the naturalist on the Amazon tells us 
we passed numerous patches of floating grass mingled with tree trunks and withered foliage among these i espied many fruits of the amazonian palm and this was the last i saw of the amazon the rio de la plata the la plata the outlet of the waters of central south america is formed by the union of the uruguay and paraná about one hundred fifty miles from the ocean a little lower down at montevideo it is sixty-two miles wide and widens rapidly to the atlantic where it discharges more water than all the rivers of europe the tributaries of the paraná are fan-shaped its most eastern branches rise in the mountains of brazil within seventy miles of the atlantic ocean and one thousand five hundred miles away on the other side of the continent its most western tributaries rise only one hundred twenty five miles from the pacific steamers ascend the paraná paraguay and cuiabá two thousand one hundred miles to cuiabá and the river with its branches is navigable for five thousand miles the san francisco the san francisco about one thousand eight hundred miles long rises near rio de janeiro and flows north about one thousand two hundred miles between parallel ranges of mountains then turns east and forces its way through the coast range to the atlantic ocean it runs through the gold and diamond regions of brazil and has a considerable population along its banks it has many falls and rapids and considerable slack water navigation general description in asia the different countries have natural boundaries the people soil and climate of one country are unlike those of others in europe there are few natural boundaries though different races inhabit the several states in south america only one dominant race is found and though natural boundaries exist yet they do not serve as boundaries to the different states other than venezuela and guiana venezuela and guiana are watered by the orinoco and by several rivers that flow from the amazonian mountains to the ocean the whole coast is low and fertile but hot and unhealthy the principal product is sugar raised by negroes and coolies the interior is sultry and thickly wooded it is inhabited by indian tribes the principal of which are the cannibal caribs and by negroes as uncivilized as any of the tribes in africa guiana is controlled by the english french and dutch cayenne the prison for french convicts is the capital of french guiana colombia and ecuador occupy the northwestern part of south america they are situated on both sides of the andes and have every variety of climate the country is well watered fertile but unhealthy on the coast fertile and healthy on the elevated plains cold and barren on the mountains in brazil besides the amazon la plata and san francisco there are several large rivers with fertile valleys but occasional droughts sometimes lasting for two years will prevent portions of brazil from becoming densely inhabited on the pacific coast south of ecuador the rainfall becomes less and less 
for three thousand miles along the coast of Peru and Chile, there is no natural harbor. A plain from ten to fifty miles in width extends from the Pacific to the foothills of the Andes. The Antarctic current runs along this coast. The southeasterly winds blow over it onto the land and cool the air. But, as the winds are of low temperature, their scanty vapor is dissipated by the heat radiated from the land, and not a drop of rain refreshes the thirsty soil. Many mountain torrents run from the snow-clad summits of the Andes, and the beauty of their narrow valleys forms a grateful contrast to the dry and barren sands of the plain. In the southern part of Chile, and in that part formerly called Patagonia, rain is abundant, and the country is fertile. The longest stretch of low and comparatively level land to be found in the world extends through the center of South America. A boat, starting from the Caribbean Sea, could sail up the Orinoco over a thousand miles, then down the Casquiari, which runs from the Orinoco into the Rio Negro, down that river to the Amazon, up the Amazon to the Madeira, then up that river and one of its branches through Brazil and Bolivia, and with a short portage of six and a half miles to one of the branches of the Paraguay, down the Paraguay and La Plata, to the ocean. The level land crosses the La Plata and continues southward through the Argentine Republic and Patagonia to the Straits of Magellan. Within this plain lie all the interior of Venezuela and Brazil, a part of Bolivia, all Paraguay, Uruguay, and the Argentine Republic. The Pampas resemble our prairies, but run from north to south, while the prairies run from east to west. The streams in the plain south of the valley of de la Plata rise in the Andes and flow southeastward to the Atlantic. The Aborigines The Aborigines of America, except the Eskimo, are unlike the natives of other countries. The most marked difference is in their language. They are divided into a number of tribes differing from each other in some respects, yet with manners, customs, and religious beliefs generally similar. In South America, there are more than one hundred distinct languages and two thousand dialects. About five or six million Indians have as many dialects as are found among the eight hundred million inhabitants of Europe and Asia. Their languages are polysynthetic, being of a higher type than the agglutinative languages. In the polysynthetic tongue, the substantive, adjective, and verb are joined or combined, and oftentimes a whole sentence will be comprised in a single word. The natives in the valleys of the Orinoco and Amazon are forced to cultivate a little ground on the floodplains, as the forests are thick and impenetrable. They live principally on the fruit of the palm, of which there are five hundred varieties, cocoa and bananas, fish and turtles. There are no roads or paths through the forests, except the numerous channels of the rivers, called igarapés, or furus. The tribes on the pampas live principally on game and wild cattle. Humboldt tells us that the navigator on the Orinoco sees with surprise at night the palm trees illuminated by large fires.
from the trunks of these trees are suspended the habitations of a tribe of indians who make their fires on mats hung in the air and filled with moist clay the same palm tree furnishes also food and wine and clothing and thus supplies every want and even the luxuries of life the indian race as a whole is believed to be superior to both the negro and the malay and neither of those races has ever attained to the civilization of the incas of peru or of the indians of mexico and the aztecs of central america many of their myths and folk tales are common not only to the indians of one part of the country but also to other tribes in distant parts of the continent and even to the negroes of africa and the arabs of upper egypt all the tribes on the continent have substantially the same habits of life the same methods of warfare the same general characteristics and a language built substantially on the same plan from these observations it might seem that the Indian tribes of South America were allied to those of Africa or to the Malays, but on further consideration, the similarity seems due rather to a like stage of civilization than to identity of race. The Incas of Peru In crossing from Arequipa in Peru to La Paz in Bolivia, the road ascends the Andes, makes a slight descent into the barren desolate valley between the andes and cordilleras crosses lake titicaca and then descends to la paz lake titicaca the largest lake of south america is on a plateau between twelve and thirteen thousand feet in height the most elevated tableland on the globe except in tibet this lake is surrounded by lofty snow-clad mountains the highest of which is Iyampa, 22,300 feet in height. On this lake are the remains of the most ancient civilization of South America. Cyclopean ruins of temples and fortresses stand as perpetual monuments of a vanished culture. When and by whom they were erected, we know not. Their builders left no other record of their existence. The wandering Indians told the first Spaniards that they existed before the sun shone in the heavens. From one of the rocky islands of Lake Titicaca, about the year 1000 or 1100, the sun, parent of mankind and giver of every good gift, taking compassion on the degraded condition of the Indians, sent two of his children, Manco Capac and Mama Oeyo Huaco, to gather the wandering tribes into communities, to teach them the arts of civilized life, and to inculcate the worship of the sun. From Lake Titicaca, this brother and sister, husband and wife, went down the valley to Cusco, where they were bidden to found an empire. Manco Capac was thus the first Inca. There were ten or twelve Incas before the conquest of Peru. Their conquests extended through the entire valley of the Cordilleras, until over four hundred tribes, with a population of many millions, became subject to their dominion. The territory of the Incas extended from the southern part of Chile, northward into Colombia, beyond Quito, 
a distance of two thousand miles, and west to the Pacific Ocean. On the eastern slope of the Cordilleras, toward the great plain of the Amazon, the Incas met a stronger and more savage people, with whom they were in constant warfare. In the several passes of the Cordilleras, they constructed fortifications to protect their borders and prevent invasion. The capital of the territory, Cusco, was situated in a beautiful valley, ten thousand feet above the sea. Amidst the Alps, such a valley would be buried in eternal snow, but within the tropics it enjoys a perpetual spring. Here the Incas loved to dwell, and remains of immense fortresses, palaces, and temples testify to their power and culture, and to the number of their subjects. Tens of thousands of laborers must have been required to construct such edifices. When we reflect that these people had no beasts of burden except the llama, which could only carry light loads, and no mechanical means for transporting the vast blocks of stone used in constructing these buildings, we are astonished at what they accomplished. The pyramids of Egypt are not more wonderful. Great highways were built, running north, south, and west, connecting different parts of the empire. One followed the valley between the Cordilleras and Andes to Quito, Another crossed the Andes and followed the sea-coast north and south to the extreme limits of their country. All traveling was on foot. Large and comfortable tambos, or inns, were erected every few miles, and larger ones at the end of a day's journey. Couriers were stationed at regular intervals, each of whom had his allotted station, between which and the next it was his duty to run at a certain pace bearing his message, and, on his approach to the next station, his signal to the next chasquier, as the couriers were called, to be ready to carry forward the message. In this way, it is said, about a hundred fifty miles a day were made. These couriers traveled more quickly than the mail carriers of Europe, and the means of communication were then, Squeer tells us, far better than they are today. Many of these old tambos are still maintained. One, in which Squeers spent the night, was a hundred eighty feet in length, with rooms forming three sides of a court. The country of the Incas had every variety of climate, and the products were those of every part of the New World. On the coast, perpetual summer rains, with all the variety and beauty of tropical vegetation, at a higher elevation, the trees are always green, and while one kind sheds its blossoms and ripens its fruit, another is budding and unfolding its bloom. Meantime, on the top of the mountains is eternal winter. In some places, as at Potosi, the changes of temperature are frequent, and extremes of heat and cold are experienced in a single day. The weather in the early morning is frosty. In the forenoon, mild and balmy. In the afternoon, scorching. And in the evening, cool and delicious. On the Pacific slope of the Andes, reservoirs were constructed, from which irrigating canals watered the whole plain, now lying desolate and barren. The conquered tribes were incorporated into the nation, and became the people of the Incas. 
if the conquered tribe was strong and warlike, some of its members were removed to distant parts of the country, and were replaced by the inhabitants of those regions, to whom privileges and immunities were given as compensation for the change of home. The conquered tribes quickly realized the benefits of the rule of the Incas, and became faithful and loyal subjects. The government of the Incas was a paternal despotism, controlling the most minute affairs of daily life. Knowledge, the Incas taught, was not intended for the people, but for those of generous ability, for it would render persons of low degree vain and arrogant. The Incas established a communal system similar to that of Russia. One-third of the land belonged to the Inca, one-third to the priests of the sun, and the remainder to the people, who were required to cultivate the land of the Inca and of the priests, as well as their own. The land was divided among the families, yearly, according to their number. Every newly married couple received a stated portion, which was increased as the family increased. Their only means of writing was by a cord, called quipus, about two feet long, composed of threads of different colors, twisted together, from which a quantity of smaller threads hung like a knotted fringe. The colors denoted sensible objects, or sometimes abstract ideas, though the principal use of the quipus was for arithmetical purposes. The civilization of the Incas appears to have been of a higher order than that of the Mexicans. It is not probable that hieroglyphics were in use among any of the South American Indians, though it is said that traces of a pictorial alphabet have been found. The people were contented and happy, although they were deprived of personal liberty, although their daily life was supervised by their rulers, and although they held only communal rights of property. They had neither ambition nor strong love of country. When Pizarro landed in Peru, there were two Incas, one at Cusco and the other at Quito, and the bitter conflict which was raging between them made the conquest of both easy. Pizarro had only a hundred eighty followers, but they were Spanish cavaliers, carrying firearms, and with this small force he overturned the Incas and enslaved the people. The descendants of the Quichuas, or the people of the Incas, still inhabit the land, a mild, apathetic, servile, and dejected race. It is said that after the conquest the women put on a black mantle, which they have worn ever since, as perpetual mourning for the last of the Incas. There are a few descendants of Spaniards in Peru, but the population consists chiefly of the descendants of the Quichuas, and mixed Spaniards and Quichuas. The Peruvians of today are less civilized than those who lived four hundred years ago. They have less liberty and are poorer. Discovery of the Amazon Great rivers have usually been discovered and explored by ascending them from the ocean to their sources. The Congo and the Amazon were explored downward from their sources to the ocean. Three hundred and fifty years ago, Gonzalo Pizarro, then governor of Upper Peru, heard of a land of silver and gold, spices and precious stones, a land where spring reigned and all tropical fruits abounded. He determined to follow the little stream, 
which, rising in the Andes, near Quito, flowed eastward, to explore the country and find the happy land. He set out with three hundred fifty cavaliers, mounted on Spanish horses, and attended by four thousand Indian slaves. The first part of the route was easy. The little stream soon became a river, then broadened into the Napo. But the farther they went, the slower and more difficult was their progress, as they passed from the open forest and the cool and invigorating breezes of the Andes into the sultry valley of the Napo. Their way now led through forests, more dense, darker, and more impenetrable than those described by Stanley, for the valley of the Amazon is richer than the valley of the Congo. Natives armed with poisoned arrows opposed their progress. Food became scarce. Treachery was on every side, and their number gradually diminished by death and by desertion of the slaves. The natives told them of a greater river than the Napo, which they would find a few days' voyage further down. This river, they said, flowed through a more populous and richer country, where food was abundant and gold was found in every stream. Pizarro determined to build a bark, and to send Orellano as commander to find and return with food and succor. For this vessel, the forests furnished the timber. The shoes of the horses were converted into nails. Distilled gum was used for pitch, and the garments of the soldiers were a substitute for oakum. In two months, a brigantine was launched, the first European vessel that ever floated on the waters of the Amazon. The Napo grew broader and deeper as the little company rapidly floated down until it became a mile wide. Three days after they left Pizarro, they saw before them a river, many times larger than the Napo, which the Indians called Paranatinega, King of Waters, but we call it the Amazon. There was no cultivation, little food could be obtained, and the Indians were hostile instead of friendly. What was to be done? Behind them was the wilderness, before them the promised land. The journey back would be difficult and dangerous. The temptation to explore the wonderful river was too great to resist. One man alone was faithful to Pizarro, and he was left on the bank, while Orellano sailed down the river. The wonder of the explorers daily increased, as other rivers larger than the Napo flowed into the Amazon, now on the north, more frequently on the south. Month after month passed. The river grew so broad that they could not see from one side to the other. Great islands were passed, channels running parallel with the main stream, larger than any river they had ever seen. Still on they went, till after several months they reached the Atlantic Ocean. Then they sailed north in their little boat, skirting the coast to Trinidad, where they found a vessel which bore them to Spain. They recounted the story of the great river, the wonderful country through which they passed, and the rich mines of which they had heard. They told fabulous tales of the Amazonians they had encountered, strong and masculine women, armed with bows and arrows, living by themselves, admitting men into their country only one month in the year, 
killing or sending away the male children, and training the girls to become Amazons and warriors. Oreano was received by the queen. His treachery was forgotten, and a new expedition was sent out under his command. But he died before reaching the river. Meantime, Pizarro and his followers slowly and with difficulty made their way down the Napo, taking as many months to reach the Amazon as Oreano had taken days. They looked in vain for their companions, but found only the solitary men who had been left behind scarcely alive, and from him learned of Oreano's desertion. Further explorations being impossible, they turned back, reached Quito two years after their departure, their horses gone, their arms broken or rusted, the skins of wild animals their only clothing. The charnel house seemed to have given up its dead, as they glided onward like a troop of spectres. Half of the Indians had perished, and of the three hundred and fifty cavaliers, only eighty were left. Such was the end of an expedition, which for dangers and hardships, length of duration and constancy displayed, is probably unmatched in the annals of American discovery. Guiana Guiana is the only country of South America not inhabited by the Latin race. It was acquired for Great Britain by one who acted contrary to his instructions in attacking a power, Spain, with which his own country was at peace. Gonzalo Pizarro, on his journey down the Napo in 1539, heard wonderful stories of a golden city far away on the banks of the Orinoco, surrounded by mountains of gold. Rumors of this golden city were carried by English navigators to Great Britain with legends of a prince of Guiana, whose body, first smeared with turpentine, was then powdered with gold dust, so that he strode among his people a majestic golden statue. Adventurers started in search of this El Dorado, some from Peru, others from Quito, and from Trinidad, but the golden city was never found. They, however, brought back reports of chiefs whose bodies sparkled with gold dust as they danced, who had golden eagles dangling from their breasts, and great pearls from their ears. They told of mines of diamonds and gold, and of the natives who longed to exchange their jewels for juice harps. Sir Walter Raleigh determined to find this country and bring to his queen its fabulous riches, for he believed that the silver and gold mines of Mexico and Peru had made Spain the first state in Christendom that purchaseth intelligence and creepeth into councils and endangereth and disturbeth all the nations of Europe. In 1595, Sir Walter sailed from England and arrived at the Isle of Trinidad, where he overthrew the Spaniards, then sailed up the Orinoco, or one of its branches, four hundred miles, until hunger and sickness compelled him to return. Although he did not reach the Golden City, he could see the mountains far in the distance, which he believed surrounded it, and he found the shining sand on the banks of the Orinoco. In Guiana, he raised the flag of England and compelled the Indians to swear fealty to his queen. Twenty years later, a prisoner in the tower, he was released in order to make a second voyage in search of this El Dorado for King James. 
he sailed in 1617, accompanied by his eldest son, but disaster and sickness met him at every step. He reached the Orinoco again, too feeble to land. So his son and Captain Camus went instead. Camus returned after a month of exploration, bringing Raleigh the news of the death of his son in an attack on a Spanish town. He brought reports of the Golden City, of the mines of gold, diamonds, and emeralds, but neither gold, diamonds, nor emeralds to confirm the truth of these reports. Raleigh said, I am undone. Camus replied, I know then, sir, what course to take. He went to his cabin and killed himself. Raleigh returned to England, a broken-down old man. The Spaniards demanded his life of James as they had demanded it of Elizabeth after his first expedition, on the ground that in time of peace Raleigh had attacked the Spanish forces and invaded their country. Elizabeth had refused, but James yielded. Raleigh was executed, but Guiana became an English colony. The gold and silver mines of Peru have failed. Little gold has been found in Guiana, but its rich and fertile soil, watered by tropical rains, has been a source of greater wealth than the gold mines of Peru. End of section 1